Well, it's good to be here. It's really good to be here. It's almost too good to be here. We've uh, been visiting other churches. We've visited um, a Bethel church. which was a Pentecostal church in Penticton. We've visited um, Summerland Baptist Church, which is one of the larger churches in the area. We visited a Victory Church. We uh, visited um, another church, Planters Church. And we miss City Chapel. But it's good to be here the Lord's Day with you. Oh, man. So Nikki um, brought this beautiful piece of work to church this morning. August 23rd, on that Sunday, 1992, I was here for the first time ever in my life worshiping God with faith and repentance. And uh, the next Monday, my dad bought me this Bible. And within the first week of having it, I read the whole New Testament book of Revelations. Thought it would be a great idea after having an apocalyptic type dream that I should baptize my best friend Doug. And he got scared, phoned the police. I ended up in the psychiatric unit for close to uh, a month and a bit. So I would have been in the psychiatric <laughs> There we go. I would have been a psychiatric unit at this time. And uh, my dad, along with Nikki, graciously made plans to break me out because it's not good when you tell them that you... Um, <laughs> so many memories, so many memories. Um, okay, let me back up. I look at this, and this was the first book that I started reading. And I... I I poured it into myself. Like I couldn't stop reading it. And if you if you look at it, it's like full of scribbles and notes and drawings because I couldn't help consuming this thing. And it changed my life, it changed my family, it changed my extended family as the word of the Lord was placed in me and it was delivered faithfully. There's a picture in here where I wish I dated it, but I drew a picture of Paul in prison in Colossians back here. Um yeah, but when you tell them that, well, you know, the Sunday before the end of the week, I, I gave my life to Christ, and in the process of giving my life to Christ, I gave my dad my handgun to stop selling drugs, and everything changed. And my dad brought me to a little tiny church, which was called Christian Faith Assembly, which is where, City Chapel? Right here. Right here, this building, 1992, sitting right about where Joel is. Well, that's not going to count against my time, is it? Curtis is like, yes, okay, let's move on. The Lord is good. And it's my, my, my joy and jer- to journey with you through the book of Habakkuk. And as you've probably known, I haven't listened to the, the previous sermons. Um, they're a little bit hard to get. They're, that's okay. And so I'm, I'm, I'm giving a little background. Maybe some of you are just joining us here visiting. And he wrote this about 598 to 612 B.C. And if you think about it, it's counting down to when Christ will come on the scene. When the Chaldeans, the Babylonians basically, were rising up in power. 
as a people group, as a nation, they were, they were gaining traction. And it's after the fall of 586 B.C. And I'm sure probably someone had mentioned this to you, but, but Habakkuk had a, he had a contemporary. He had a contemporary, and that contemporary was, was Jeremiah. And so they, you, have this, you have this major prophet and this minor prophet. And they're, they're in the same time period. And if you think of that, it's, it's kind of funny because here you have, you know, Hab, that's what we're going to call him now, Hab. You have Hab who's in this place of, you know, writing this oracle and, and, and wrestling with God and processing a lot of things concerning what's happening in his time period. And in the same time period, you have Jeremiah, we're just going to call him Jer now. You know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. He, he wasn't, but Jeremiah was a prophet and he was a good friend of Habakkuk. And uh, he was a weeping prophet. Why? Because he was sent to labor and to, to bring forth ministry in the Word of God to a people whose hearts were hard. They would not respond to the ministry and the Word that he was bringing to them, to the warning, and he knew what was going to come. And Jeremiah, you know, not only did he write his, his book, the book of Jeremiah, but he also wrote the book of Kings and Lamentations. And so Jeremiah, along with Hab, would have been experiencing this, this difficult time in Judah, in Israel. The judgment of God coming upon his people. And so as we, we look at this book, we have Hab recording these oracles and prayers, this crying out to the Lord, knowing the situation, almost like reading the writing on the wall. It kind of reminds me of a, a mini Job without all the suffering that Job went through, but this, this series of questions. And old Hab was perplexed by the evil, which was very obvious. It was very prevalent in, in the land. You think of how Kings ends, right? You think of how the book of Kings ends? It's like everybody was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. And sin was very evident. It was very obvious. And so we find him questioning the method God was using to address sin, to discipline sin, to punish Sin. And these questions that Hab had, he, he took to God. And we have this, this short book, this dialogue between a minor prophet and his interceding, crying out. He's perplexed with what God is doing, what God is unpacking in his time period, in his day. And God answers his questions. He doesn't just answer his questions and like just, you know, Dad, why can't I do that? Because I said so. Dad, I don't like, I said, like, there's, no, God, God the Father answers his questions in such a way that he is completely satisfied with the answers to his questions, to the things that are causing him turmoil 
And just in review, going from chapter 2 to verse 5 to 20, there's a series of five woes, and, and these are building up to this last woe that, that I'm addressing today. In verses 5 to 8, woe basically upon those who lust for conquest to be used selfishly. I love how, I love how it's qualified. Do we, not, do we not desire, do we not pursue conquest concerning the king and his kingdom? But it's not selfish. It's for his glory. Verse 8, retribution shall come to them. Verses 9 to 11, wo- woes, woes to the covetous. 12 to 14, woe to those who practice violence. Verses 15 to 17, woe to those who degrade others. Verses 8 to 20, woe to those who turn to idols. Well, we're picking up in those verses, verses 18 to 20. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 786. You know, as I, as I read those lists of woes to you, I can pretty much, before I came to Christ, check off every single one of those. And even after I came to Christ, I can still check off those things, but in a different context. I remember my dad coming to me with the gospel, sharing the gospel with me when I was in grade nine. And I basically like, Dad, I'm glad you found Jesus. I'm seeing a change in you. That's great. But I'm going, into, I'm, going, I'm going to high school. And there's a whole bunch, basically, of idols that I want to pursue when I hit Lindsay Thurber. And there's like gold. I want to make money. I want the girls. I want the glory. I want my name to be known in Thurber. And so we're picking up in verses 18 to 20. And I hope that as we go through this portion of Scripture in the same way that it has been wrecking me this week, it's been pressing into me, that it would also press into you. That the Holy Spirit would use this word from this prophet to continue to minister to his people today. So hear now the reading of God's word. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. May the Lord add His own blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we we call upon You, acknowledging that You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would You come and speak Your Word with renewing power to our hearts and to our minds? Would You arrest us, Lord? Would You subdue us with Your truth? Lord, I pray that You would cause a, a joy and a love for Your truth, for Your Word to ignite in all of us. And those here, Lord, who who don't know that, who haven't experienced that, that you, Holy Spirit, would release it in us as a congregation this morning. 
that the living Word would be active for the mission that You have called us to, that You have given us. And for it's in the awesome name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen. Verse 18 begins to address idolatry of individuals, but also of of nations. Because what are nations made up of? Individuals. And so I love it when people are like, you know, certain parts of the scripture are like, oh, that's just talking about a nation, not as individual. I'm like, uh, nations are made up of individuals, individuals so we can address us individually. And, and that is what's happening here. He's addressing the fact that these individuals are, or these nations would give the praise of victory or the praise of success or the, or the praise of blessing to their idols, these false, false gods. And now this, this really, it really rips Hab up. It really bothers him. Because he believes in the living God. He believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believes in the God who took Adam out of the clay and breathed life into him and made him a living soul from the dust. I'm going to be honest with you that there's times and, and even this week as I was wrestling with this text where I'm reflecting on you know, what triggered Hab to, to come to this place of like, listen, Lord, I have some complaints. I, I have some things I want to address. They've kind of, they've kind of bothered me. And, and I, I have that attitude. I, I've had that attitude in the last week. Maybe there's certain things in your life that are bothering you too. I mean, I hope I'm, I'm finding myself maybe in good company. A little bit farther back in this book, we read, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, hasty nation who marched through to seize dwellings, not their own. They gather captives like sand. Like You're going to build a sand castle and shape it into your own little sandcastle kingdom. They do this. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and, and go on. They're guilty men whose own might is their God. This is part of what's bothering Hab. These Chaldeans are, are going to have victory over Judah. These Chaldeans are going to gain territory and subdue the nation of Israel. People, they're going to they're going to be put into captivity. Lord, your people are going to be put into captivity. And, and Lord, you're the one who's raising them up. It's not their idols. It's not this stone and, and wood covered in gold and silver. Lord, it's you. You're, you're letting this happen. You're raising them up that they might turn around and give praise to stone and wood concerning their own power and their own victory, Lord, over your people. And this might have been the kind of stuff that, that made Jeremiah cry. 
This might have been the kind of stuff that stirred his heart up in such a way that, that he was broken over the things that were happening. And so as we find Hab in this place of complaining a, a little, and, and I think they're fairly good questions. And again, do you ever find yourself asking these kinds of questions? Do you ever find yourself as, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a co-worker, bringing these kinds of questions to the Lord. Lord, why are you letting these things unfold in my family, in my friendships, in my occupation? But this text should remind us, as disciples of Christ, who are in a covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what this is all about. When we see this prophet going through these woes, it should remind us of Exodus 20. It should take us right there. There should be something that should cause us to be hardwired to what Moses wrote when he gave the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the gospel. As I'm reading this, this is the gospel. This is Moses unpacking the gospel. You, some of you are enslaved to sin, and you will never be able to save yourselves because you're dead in your trespasses and sin, and you are in desperate need for someone else to save you. This is the gospel. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of bondage, out of Satan's control, out of Satan's kingdom. And where did he bring you? Into the land of freedom, milk and honey. Brought you into the kingdom of light. You, because I've done these things for you. Because I love you. And I want to be in covenant with you. And your children and your children's children. Because I've done these things for you, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Woe, woe to those who make for themselves idols out of stone and wood and cover them in gold and worship them and bow down to them and give them credit and praise for the things they think they're accomplishing. Is that heavy? Oh, let's jump into verse 6. But showing steadfast love to those for a thousand years who love me and keep my commandments. This isn't just an interesting history lesson found in this little tiny book, this conversation, these complaints, these oracles and prayers that we have, have bringing. This, what we're addressing today as we go through this series, is a timeless issue. It is an ongoing battle. It is an ongoing struggle. Why? Because adultery and our war with it 
is the challenge of the gospel in every single age. And tomorrow, for the church, for the body of Christ, for us as we, as we leave here and we enjoy the rest of the Lord's Day and we, we start the day here worshiping, the first day of the week, we start with this. Tomorrow begins once again our battle with the idols that want to get in the idols that want to pull our attention, the idols that want to be exalted above the living Christ, the idols that desire to be exalted above the written word, and the word that became flesh and tabernacled with us. And idolatry is all about false worship. And do you know why we're here, City Chapel? Because we have been sent on mission. Our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, came here and lived on mission for 33 years, laid it out. Here's my assignment that the Father gave you. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm giving you the instructions regarding it. And now I am going and I'm giving it to you. The mission that I'm on is now being handed off and it's becoming the mission that we are on. Why? Because we have been given the mission of going and proclaiming through our lives, through our word, the gospel. Until the day when the Lord ends all false worship. That day will come. Praise the Lord. That The day is coming when the Lord is like, Today's the day, boys. Go get those horses. And Jesus is coming. And I use that imagery in my mind. I'm, busy, I'm very visual of, of Jesus coming, leading the, the army of hosts behind him as he comes to end false worship. As he comes to, once and for all, destroy idols. No false worship. No mission. If false worship is gone, our mission is done. But until false worship is addressed, and because it's still existing, we are still on mission with the gospel addressing the idolatry, not only in our lives first. Do any of you find that place where you have to address the idolatry in your life first? before you go and can apply the gospel to others and, and, and graciously point out to them the idolatry in their life, the, the sin in their life? Because we're all on a journey to grow in truth, to grow into maturity. August the 23rd, 1992, when I sat there, I was immature in Christ. I, I, I needed milk. I needed people to come alongside me and encourage me and disciple me and to journey with me and press into me and transition me into greater levels of maturity. Can I tell you right now, the Lord has been found faithful to do that? Or I wouldn't be from there to here today. Amen? But we all have a part in that. This war in idols, idolatry, in our hearts. 
And I've had some very important individuals come into my life and be like, hey, Shane, come here, brother. I love you, and I just want to address an idol in your life that is very evident. Now, we can joke about that. We can joke about that on different levels. You know, I laid down my bike in July, and I haven't ridden it much since then, and it's getting some work done on it, not because it's greatly damaged, but because, you know. And someone could come along and be like, hey, Shane, you know what? The Lord laid down your bike because it's an idol in your life. Well, you know what? Thanks. Because I've been hanging out in B.C., driving along these roads and being like, Lord, I sure would like my bike. And I'm in a place right now where I don't get my bike. And even this morning, I was poking Chuck. Like, he crashed his car, his race car. He races, and most races take place on Sunday. And I'm like, oh, would you be racing today if, if your car was okay? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, idle. Give him a poke, right? You're here to hear this sermon. But it, it doesn't work that way. We don't get to just come along and be like, this is an idol in your life. There are times where that is true. There's times where that is real. Me poking Chuck is not one of those times. Unless the Holy Spirit adds something to that. I don't know. Right? Me feeling the way I do about my bike may not be one of those times. But you know what? It, there's things like that that should cause us to recalibrate. Be like, Lord, you know what? Have I made a thing that you have given for me to enjoy the most important thing? Because I need to rein that down. I need, to, I need to take that off that top shelf and put it where it belongs. And there are seasons in my life as I matured, growing in Christ, where there's just things that I could not go do, touch, because it would be a temptation. It would be an idol that would be like, hey, glad to see you're back. Polish me off, shine me, breathe on me. Take me to your favorite place, the most intimate spot in your heart, and worship me again. Since the Lord is at work, and since we've been given the gospel, and since this has been going on, since Adam and Eve, this is what we call redemptive history. Do you remember? There was a snake in a tree in a garden, and the snake, the thing could talk. Like, wouldn't that get your attention? And the snake came alongside, and what did he address? Has the Lord really said, you shall not? And the snake, I can't help but see the jungle book right now with its eyes going, Eve, has the Lord truly said, you shall not? And all of a sudden, Eve is like, man, that piece of fruit, that idol, it looks like I'll gain knowledge from it, that it will be a tasty, tasty, delightful thing because obviously God has been holding out on us. And we know how we love things exploding in our taste buds. And number two, it's pleasing to the eye. And boom, Eve exchanges the word of the living God for the word of a demon. 
That might be a good transition into the Lord's Supper. There's something Paul has to say about that in Corinthians. Maybe you're going there already, brother. I'll leave that for your discernment. And as we look at this thing, we have to find a place where the Lord is faithful regarding His Word. He's true to it. And since the Lord is who He is, and, and since the Lord has done what He's promised to do, He will not share His worship. He will not share His praise. He will not share His glory with another. There's no way. Is this the place in the sermon now where I ask Joel to come up and you know, could you just lightly strum your guitar, Joel, and, and, and Trevor, if you wouldn't mind dimming the lights just a little bit, and I want to encourage you now to bring forth your idols made of gold and silver up here and just lay them down at the altar. And I know some of you have classic vinyl. You have some classic vinyl out there, and you should probably bring that up here too so I can collect it and address it and add it to my collection. Well, you're looking at me and you're like, well, I haven't, I haven't worshipped an idol made of hands, you know, of gold or silver this week, Pastor. Um, you know, so I kind of I got this one nailed down. Let's, let's move on to your next point. You have something else for me? Because I've, I've dealt with the, the stone and the wood idols. Once again, an idol is anything that has been exalted or placed above the Godhead, the living God. And friends, our, our greatest challenge in the area of worship today is the intellect, the fantasy, our will, our desires. We, we don't have idols in the context of our text today. I get that. But if someone did and they brought it up, that'd be really cool. Kind of. You know, it would be because we could address it. Like take your idol and we're like smash it and flip. yeah. But our idols, you know, we we don't we don't have it like the nation that's being addressed here, Israel, Judah, through the prophets. We don't have idols that look like that. And really, think about it. Neither did Judah or Israel. It didn't, right? But it had idols. And sure, their idols were not the idols that you could physically touch. See, much like them, we have first world idols. We don't have third world idols. But those types of idols still exist out there in the nations today. And so our great challenge today is making mental, intellectual ideas, desires, even things that we believe about the Godhood or we, we, we want to pursue, making sure that it is in its proper place and that it is submissive to the word of God I had a conversation with many people over the years about this topic and really I, I, I really am surprised for the most part how ignorant the body of Christ is concerning idolatry concerning worship. I mean, if someone can come in and deceive you with a gospel that says, hey, Jesus plus health, idol. Hey, Jesus plus a big fat wallet, idol. And it's happening all over, everywhere we turn. 
Jesus plus. Accessorize your life with Jesus. And as long as Jesus is in the equation, what idols do you want? What, what idols do we want? I mean, those are big ones, right? Health, wealth. And so I have this conversation with people addressing idols and ideas as they express to me and tell me about their God. And, and I had a friend, like, our relationship came to an end because I had to address him on some Bill Johnson teaching. I had to address him on some of the things that he was holding to and understanding and practicing, and it ended, it ended our friendship. And I didn't want our friendship to end, but I loved him so much that I actually had this conversation with him. Because he was in a place where he was beginning to unpack, and many do, a picture of a desired deity. And it kind of looks like this, being, being all wise, but, but God forbid, never meddling. Compassionate. To the very end. But never doing something that you would identify as rude. Helpful. So very helpful. Consistently helpful. But never stepping over onto your toes. Ever resourceful. Always ready to give a hand. But God forbid ever interrupting your plans or agenda. All loving and never really angry. Well, I can tell you're a little bit angry, but you're not really angry. Your biggest fan and, and hoping in all of this that you will just love him back. We all face the temptation, don't we? From the moment we, we gain consciousness in the morning to begin our day, to begin adjusting our thinking about God to accommodate our preferences, our liking, or even our, our, our culture. Doesn't James warn us that disputes and, and arguments and, and all these things that cause division that stir up inside of you and he goes on to say this, this is demonic. It's demonic. Because we begin, even in the body of Christ, remember that vision I had of the grapes and we're all tangled up and we're, you know, we're choking each other out? Oh! And then the vine dresser comes and untangles and separates so that we, we produce more fruit. But what we want our desires. We want to pursue them. We want to present ourselves. We want to make ourselves valuable. And so things begin to go sideways. And we face these temptations. And they're real. It's very easy for us to remake a God in our own image. And we can do this even when we're in a place of saying, check out my doctrinal list of biblical truths. Check, 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 check. Isn't this awesome? Check, 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 check. And yet, there's idols. And even that, in and of itself, can become an idol. We talk about the real Jesus. And honestly, many, many don't like him. You talk about what the real Jesus taught and what he did and what he looked like. And they're like, I don't like that one. I want the hippie one with the flow and the lamb and the blue thing, the dress. Let's talk about that Jesus. 
But we have a real Father. And we talk to Him about His wrath and His jealousy and His, his dealing with justice and, and sin and what it's going to look like for all eternity to those who reject the Gospel. And this is quote-unquote my friend who our relationship came to an end. He sounds like he's in the child abuse, bro. What? Yeah, hell sounds like eternal child abuse. What kind of loving God would ever do that to these children he supposedly loves? Snap. Shane's like, are you kidding me? Let me read for you a lot of text addressing the character of God concerning his just punishment of the wicked. And that was the end of our relationship for a long time. That relationship, by God's grace, is being restored. Why? The Word of God does not return void. Amen? And so we have a tenacity today to seek and to serve the God we want, not the God who is. Not the great I am, but the I want this. And when we worship and serve the God we want, rather than the God who is, we're not worshiping the true God, but our own idol. And as we live out the gospel and we live in the context of our city, our communities, our culture, we are going to come across this over and over and over again. And often you don't need to be talking in you know, Christian needs or theological language or even about spiritual things for people to begin unpacking for you their idols. Our own Jesus, which so often has to do with our own comfort. You guys remember... Uh, I mean, a gentleman by the name of William Paul Young. William Young. Anyone remember him? No? Anyone? I don't know whether to be concerned or celebrate that no one here has read The Shack. I'm going to celebrate. <laughs> oh, it's okay, Cam. Okay, so, in 2007, William Paul Young published the best-selling novel, The Shack. And, and I understand his heart. I understand what he's trying to address. I read it. Um, I haven't watched the movie. And I understand his heart. I understand that he is addressing and working through something that's very difficult. Tragedy. It's a tragedy. And, and, and wants to confront this issue. And in the story, the main character, a man called Mac, is searching for answers after his daughter was murdered. Very difficult situation. Very challenging. That should cause us to, to grieve and, and to mourn. And as the story unfolds, he has a series of encounters with small g God, which is actually a radically redefined, re-imaged, not even the Trinity, more like modalism. And as he's doing this, Young pictures God the Father as a middle-aged African-American woman named Papa. Let's just enter in a whole level of confusion there. The Holy Spirit is an Asian lady named Sarah Yu, I think. How's it pronounced in the movie, Cam? You don't remember? It's okay. Saru? Saru? And God the Son is a Hebrew male, about 33 years old. 
correctly named Jesus. Change the name of Jesus. And this is like, I get my own sidetracked over here. It's like, listen, William, you change the name of Jesus and the Christian evangelicals are not going to buy your book. But you can probably add these elements over here with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but don't touch the Jesus thing, right? Or the church won't buy it. And I understand that Young is trying to answer the problem of evil and suffering. And we should find ourselves in that place of desiring and willing to answer the problem of evil and suffering. And I get that. Many of us have suffered greatly and lost family members. And it can, it can rip us very, very deep into the depths of our soul. And so because his idea of God is, is completely severed from the biblical teaching, I mean, it's not hard to show that case. His answer to everything also falls dangerously wide of what the scriptures teach regarding the Godhead and why suffering exists. And if I could answer in the simplest of forms, and I'm paraphrasing R.C. Sproul when I say that it must be good that evil and the effects of evil, suffering, death, loss of life, all these things that we look at like, yuck! It must be good that these things, evil, suffering, exist for a short time. Or God, who is holy, would not let it be so. There. There's the doctrine of suffering. All in a nice little package. And we go, I, I want more than that. And, and Habakkuk, he, he's in a place saying, he wants more than that. And so, he really is placing a false godhead before anyone who reads this book. And most Christians would just read it and not even understand that. They're just like, it was good. It really touched me. It really pulled on my emotions. It really, it really stirred me to understand God's heart towards us in suffering. And of course, there's elements of truth in there. They're like, that's good, that's good, that's good. Oh, that's not good, that's not good, but that's good, that's good. But overall... I can't think of a better modern example of someone who has taken the doctrines of the Godhead and changed it into his own comfort thing regarding God and suffering. He's created his own idol of God to comfort himself and those he teaches with his own written word called the shack. The emotional subject of suffering and, and his words begin to hardwire the readers. Do you get that? There's power in the written word. The enemy knows that. That's why we have the, the Book of Mormon. That's why we have the Quran. That's why we have other things that cause us to become emotionally hardwired to a written word. And so it's, it's important to have the hardwiring correct. And as they submit to that and, and check off on that, they begin to become blind to many issues regarding other false doctrines. You know, I have family members that Nikki and I have engaged in the conversations with them about the shack, and it just becomes this weird, do not talk to us about it anymore. Don't go there. I'm like, okay, we won't go there. But, <laughs> yeah, 
You see, there are two ways that we really function in the context of idolatry. You can worship something other than the one true God, and that's what the Chaldeans are doing. That's one way. Or you can worship the one true God by some other means than those that he has appointed. And in there, you allow all these other idols and things to come in and have priority, even though you say you worship the one true God. You tell me, Lord, to worship you in this manner, but I'm going to worship you the way I want to worship you. And I could give you, but for the sake of time, I won't, examples where strange fire and different things happened and people died. Because God did not instruct them to worship him in that way, but they decided that it would be permissible, and they're dead. End of story. Moses goes on to give a very stiff warning regarding idolatry. And Hab and and Jer are living in the warning as it's becoming a very difficult reality. I visit the inequity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Here's a word of exhortation to the heads of households, especially when I look upon the congregation and I see fathers and grandfathers. Dads, it's your primary task to pursue the hearts of your children with applying the gospel in love and in your life to you first and then to them with a jealousy and a zeal that will be in their forefront, will be in their vision. It will be an echo to them, a mirror, an example, a glimpse of the heart of the Father for them. If you're a daddy, that is your primary ministry. That, that is your primary ministry. It's like, no, but I want to do this for me. I don't care. If you can't do this well, you, don't, you shouldn't be doing other ministry. Do, do this well. This is your primary thing. Why? Why? Because as you do this, you will teach them the truth and point them to Christ. They will see the gospel being lived out in you. You will model before their eyes what it looks like to live in faith and repentance. This is your great calling. That as they look at you clinging to Christ, as they look and watch you resting and abiding in the vine, they begin to understand that the Father, the vine dresser, comes along and does these beautiful things with our lives. And that the steadfast love of the Lord is is consistent and ongoing. That they may learn to follow you in your steps even better. Lord, would my children be more obedient than I've been? Would Would they gain knowledge and application quicker than we ever did as their parents? Lord, would you cause it to increase from generation to generation in this congregation? That they would know what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because you have modeled an element of that love for him and the mission he sent you on before them. But now here's the thing. I look at Trevor. He's back there doing his thing. He's single. But he doesn't check out from the conversation, from the sermon. The same truth applies to all of us in our relationships. To the mothers, to the uncles, to the friends, to the co-workers, to the single guys, to the single women. We all have that responsibility. 
But the Lord emphasizes in His Word, fathers. We're being told here that God is strict in His justice. Habakkuk is living in it. He's seeing it unfold. And the Lord is focused in His pursuit of justice towards those who He says, this is evident of them hating me. He describes those who disobey His commands as those who hate Him. But notice what He goes on to say with a word of promise, with a sweet, tender word of compassion. The joy of His mercy and His grace and His blessing poured out, but showing loving kindness to those Showing loving kindness to thousands who love me and keep my commands. Jesus said that on the night that he was betrayed, if you love me, keep my commands. Why do you call me Lord and not keep my commands? Why do, why do you say that you love me and not keep my commands? You see, to love God is to keep his commands. You keep his commandments, and he shows us mercy for a thousand generations. His word of justice and His word of mercy, they come together in this beautiful tapestry, woven together to show us that God delights in showing mercy and compassion. He alone is holy, and He's the one who brings a total balance to justice and mercy for His glory. Lord, I, I trust that You are holy. It should be the heart's cry that we find ourselves in. I know that You are holy, and, and You you're the one who's governing all of this sin and death that we're experiencing throughout this course of redemptive history, what you've done since the beginning of sin regarding salvation to this present day, Lord. You are holy. And you are handling it in perfect justice and perfect mercy because you're holy and you're doing it so that you'll be glorified. What's the Lord saying through this book? What is Habakkuk learning with the questions he's asking? That the way we worship is a reflection of our knowledge and doctrine of God and an understanding of the gospel and its effects and how seriously we take him regarding the marvelous things that we have poured out upon us, regarding grace and mercy, regarding warnings and punishment, that these are sobering things for us. And we come here Sunday after Sunday, the beginning of the week, to recalibrate ourselves, to acknowledge, Lord, this week, idols snuck in. Lord, this week, I want to come afresh because you are the covenant-keeping God, and I trust in you. And I tell you, we cannot worship the true living God unless we come to Him through Jesus Christ, His Son. And that first step that I took so long ago was to get together with my dad and confess my sin to him, to listen to his instructions as I turned to Jesus in faith and repentance. And that was my first step, my first big step, becoming a disciple of Christ. 
and falling more and more in love with him every single day, praying that the emotion that I felt on that day would never be quenched, that my first love would never dry up, but that it would continue and that he would add to it also knowledge and wisdom. In coming to him, we find ourselves in that place, acknowledging that our heart, as Calvin said, is, is an idol factory. We acknowledge that we need the living word and the promised Holy Spirit to change and to reform and constantly decrease our love for idol worship. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let all our idols be consumed as we trust in his finished work as our high priest. In him we find our deep confidence in the gospel. May we rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. And as Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of our God. How sweet is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly is worthy of worship. And I think that's where Hab finds himself. After the questions, after God coming and addressing his questions, his complaints, that he can just simply say, the Lord is in his temple. He is holy. He is just. He is merciful. And all of this is for his own glory. And I'm just going to sit here now and begin to worship him as the rest of it unfolds. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchanging in your wisdom, your power, your holiness, your justice, your goodness and truth. We come asking that you would save us from our foolishness of reinventing you, reimagining you, in order to make you fit in our likeness and to satisfy our comforts. Instead, we come to you praying that you would teach us to bow and humble faith and repentance, resting in the gospel that you have so graciously provided for us. For it truly is good news. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.